Well, good morning and happy Easter uh, to everybody here, um, to our Riverview family and those who are uh, visiting from out of town or just visiting from here in town. Uh, grateful to have you with us this morning. Um, if you brought a Bible with you, a physical Bible, go ahead and turn over to Matthew 27. Um, if you didn't happen to bring a physical Bible and you've got your device, you can go ahead and scroll on to Matthew 27 as well. Um, that's where we're going to spend our time uh, this morning. Uh, and as you're finding Matthew 27, I'm going to pray again. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that um, you woke your people up this morning and brought them here to hear about the resurrection, to hear about what Jesus has done. Thank you for this time. Lord, we don't want to waste it. Um, This is such a valuable time. This is such a celebration. And so I pray that you would bring joy to our hearts, that you would bring joy to our experience this morning, but you also bring about a levity to understand what it was that you did for us through your son Jesus on the cross. So take this morning and use it for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name now. Amen. Uh, sometimes it's hard uh, to, to see what's right in front of you, isn't it? Anybody, I don't know if anybody's had an experience like that. Sometimes it's hard to see what's right in front of you. Let me explain uh, from just an experience of my own life. As soon as I got to my first duty station when I was in the Army, uh, I ended up being the captain's driver. Now, if you don't know what that means to be the captain's driver, it's basically a glorified taxi driver, okay? Or to put it in uh, today's terms, it's a free Uber ride for the captain. He doesn't have to pay anything. And so whenever the captain wants a ride and wants to go somewhere, you have to drop what you're doing immediately. You have to go pick him up and take him to where it is that he wants to go. It's definitely not what you think about when you dream about joining the army and storming the beaches or storming the jungles or storming the deserts and taking on the enemy. I was the captain's driver, okay? And so uh, one uh, particular uh, summer, we had to go to the Mojave Desert out in Southern California, and we had to do some desert operations. And while we were there, uh, I had to drive the captain around during the day, and I had to drive him around at nighttime too, um, so that we can um, simulate combat situations. And so there was uh, one evening where I had to drive him around throughout the desert, and uh, uh, when you're driving at night, you don't use headlights, okay? Here, you drive on the street, you use headlights at night so people can see you coming. When you're out in the desert and you're simulating desert op- operations, you don't turn on your headlights because you don't want the enemy to see you coming. So you cut off the headlights. And so that you can see at night, you have to wear something called night vision goggles. NBGs is what you have to do. And so I put my NBGs on and we're driving through the desert. And as soon as I flicked them on, guys, like something was busted inside of them because I couldn't see anything. Like, they turned on, but something was wrong because it was fuzzy, it was, it was like just bright, and I couldn't see anything that was in front of me at all. But I'm new, right? I, I'm new, and I want to make a good impression with the captain, uh, with the captain. I want to make a good impression with my unit and everything. So I, I'm, I'm trying my best to figure out, how, how do I not make a scene here? I, I want to I kind of fake it till I, I make it in this scenario. I have no idea what I'm doing here. Can't see anything. And, and so I start driving like 15 miles an hour, just thinking that maybe that will help. And I think when I say 15 miles an hour, that's actually a bit of an exaggeration because it might have been way slower than that. And I'm driving through the desert, can't see anything, and I think I'm hitting every shrub tree that's out there. I think I'm busting into every ravine that's there, and surely the captain has no clue that I can't see anything. But he's a pretty sharp guy, okay? And so he's starting to figure this out really quickly. Something's not right with this guy. And so he leans over, he's like, what the heck are you doing? I was like, why are you driving so badly? And, and, I, and I couldn't hide it anymore. And I'm like, sir, hey, uh, I, I think my night vision goggles are broken. And he said, why don't you say something? 
You, like, you could have saved us both whiplash a long time ago. And so he takes his goggles off and he puts them, uh, and he gives me his, and I put them on, and I can see everything. I can see the fields, I can see the trees, I can see everything that's in front of me. It's almost like a blindfold was taken off of my eyes and the curtain had been uh, removed. Sometimes it's hard to see what's in front of you when your vision seems to be being blocked. And I know for us, in our day-to-day lives and the things that we walk through, that there are some things that we bump into that really make it hard for us to see that God's at work. There's some things that we walk into, like doubt, right? Doubt can be like this curtain in front of us that, that keeps us from seeing what God is up to. Uh, not only doubt, but pain. There are, there are painful situations that we walk through that keep us from seeing that God is at work. There are hardships that we walk through that help us to, or keep us from seeing that God is at work. They act like a blinder over our eyes or a curtain that's in front of us. And I think, even if we're being honest, that prosperity can be a blinder in front of us too because we, we don't feel like or we feel like we've got everything figured out, we've got everything that we need, and we can't see that we need someone or need anything involved in our lives. And there are times when we know that there's something that is keeping us from seeing something that is so critically important in our lives that we need to be able to see that is right in front of us. But we're so afraid sometimes to raise up our hands and say, Sir, I can't see anything. Sir, I need help. There's something that is blocking my vision. I need help. For 1,500 years, Israel had been living with a curtain and a blinder in front of them. Actually, it had been much longer than that, but the curtain had showed up about 1,500 years prior. There's a curtain or a blinder in front of them that was keeping them from seeing the presence of God, from seeing that God was actually trying to be involved in their lives. And what I want to do this morning is I'm going to spend the time that we have together. Yes, talk about the resurrection, but I'm going to spend some time talking about the curtain, the thing that, stand, that stood right in front of Israel that separated them from the presence of God. Now, most of us know the story of Adam and Eve, right? We, we know that Adam and Eve, they were created in the image of God. They were placed in the garden, and they were placed in the garden. They had perfect relationship with God. And I think it's so hard for us to even imagine what that might look like, that you have a perfect, unhindered, uninhibited relationship and connection with God. And we, we have no concept for that in, in and of our own relationships right now. There was no fear. There was nothing standing in the way. No shame, no regrets, nothing hidden, no space barriers, no time barriers, 100% access to God anytime that they wanted. And for those who are tangible, like I want to see it, I want to touch it, I want to taste it, I want to feel it, like this is extremely important, right? It, because if you're a tangible thinker like, like I am, if you can see it and you can feel it and you can be around it, you know that it's there. But of course, Adam and Eve, they kind of broke that relationship they had with God. That uninhibited access was done away with and there was a wedge that was immediately placed in between God and man called sin. Like this barrier going up, like a wall that was in front of them that was being built between uh, God and man. And so that tangible, I can see you and you can see me and we can have this interaction that's uninhibited by anything else that goes by the wayside. And here's the thing, it had to be like that, right? Because God is holy. And a holy God can't be in the presence of anything that isn't holiness. His holiness demands perfection. His holiness demands holiness as well. And so a holy God can't be in the presence of sin because something negative is going to happen. It's not going to be something negative that happens to God. It's going to be something negative that happens to man. When God is in the presence of the sinner, what happens is that the sinner has to die. And so what happens is in an act of grace, God slides Adam and Eve outside of the garden so that they will not die in his presence. 
And then in that moment, a barrier between God and man is placed. And the great question that comes out of the garden is, is there ever going to be able to be that same kind of access ever again? And the answer to that question, just to be blunt from the very beginning, is yes. Un, uh, uh, like, uh, uninhibited, un, uh, uh, unqualified, resoundingly yes. You're going to be able to have that kind of access to God again. That's what Easter is about. That's what the resurrection is about. The resurrection proves that. But the sin in the garden between Adam and Eve it had to be dealt with. My sin, your sin, had to be dealt with. It can't go unchecked. And so God says, okay, here, here's what we're going to do. I've, I've got a plan. You don't know about the plan, but I know about the plan. I've actually always known about the plan. Uh, I'm God. That's what I do. I'm pretty good with plans, okay? And so here's the plan. Israel, you're going to build this thing that's called a tabernacle. And here's all the instructions, but, but do it just like I tell you to do it. Don't skimp on anything. Get it right. It, it, like, I want you to put a room inside the tabernacle. And inside that room, I want you to call this thing, I want you to call it the, the Holy of Holies because this is a place where my presence is going to be. This is a place where my glory is going to dwell with you and you can meet with me. But here's the thing. Don't look at it. Don't touch it. Don't go in there. You put a huge veil in front of that space and you block it off. A huge curtain to make sure that nobody comes in and that nobody sees my presence because if they do, they're going to die. But once a year, the priest, totally clean, totally dressed in the garments that I've chosen and purified according to my standard, the priest can come in and he can offer a sacrifice for himself, for his own sins, but he can offer a sacrifice for all the sins of all the people as well and there will be forgiveness in this place. But make sure that you keep on doing this once a year, year after year, every year, you do this. I don't know how you are with consistency. I'm not always that great with consistency. This was a plan of consistency that God had put in place here. Only one person, once a year, every year, ever got to access the presence of God as he made a sacrifice for sin. Everybody else was denied access. Everybody else was on the outside looking in, wishing that they had access to God like that. And this curtain, this curtain that was put up in front of them acted like a big sign that was posted out front, the door, out, out front outside the door that said, access to the Father denied. Denied. Try to imagine that. Right? Like, God is right there. And I can't go see him. I can't go touch him. I can't approach him. I can't even get close to where he's at. I had a uh, buddy uh, and I, uh, when we lived in Dallas, loved to go to Dallas Mavericks games and Cowboys games. We went to a few uh, together. And, and I, I remember, like, don't, don't try this, okay? Don't do this. I'm, this is a bit of my depravity. But every time we went to a game, we would try to see if we could get into the VIP sections, okay? We didn't have the tickets to get in there, but we would try uh, to do that. And so I remember we were, went to the American Airlines Arena to the Mavericks game this one time. And we got our tickets, and we went, and we sat down in our seat and uh, got cozied in there. We're watching the game. We're like, okay, hey, let's go see if we can get to, into some VIP sections. And so we got up. We started walking around, and we looked for, you know, they're always marked off by black curtains or rope or something. Or, and so we went over, and there, there's this place. Surely, okay, you got to have a certain ticket. you got to have certain access to be able to get into the space. And so we go over there, and we start to try to get in. And there was this little old lady there. God bless her heart, okay? She was doing her job. She was standing there, and uh, she said, hey, you can't go in. Let me see your tickets. And so we showed her ticket with confidence, right? Here, here's, here's, here's my ticket. And she looked at the ticket, and she says, 
you guys can't go in there. You don't have access to get in that space. We're like, okay, yeah, thank you. And then so we left her, and then we went over to another place looking for another black curtain to see. And I kid you not, we found another black curtain, and this same old lady was at the next curtain. And we're like, are you kidding me right now? And so we tried again, though. And so we tried to get in. She's like, hey, I need to see your tickets. And we showed her tickets, and of course, it's the same lady. She's like, you guys don't have access here. We went to about two or three more, and it was the same old lady every single time. I think she was tracking us. She was on to us, okay? And so we tried, and she's like, guys, you do not have access. You cannot go in there. Your ticket will not allow it. That's what the curtain did for Israel. It checked the ticket at the door. If you were the high priest, you could go in. If you weren't the high priest, nobody could get access. How frustrating and defeating must that have been for the people who were trying to follow after God? Fast forward with me to the New Testament. Jesus shows up. He's on the scene. There's clearly something different about him. He calls disciples to come and follow after him. He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be connected with God the Father, that he and the Father are one, that the two can't be separated. He claims a relationship with God that nobody else has been able to claim or to validate or to back up. And so he is tangible. He is God in the flesh, right? He is very much God and very much man, all at the same time, inseparable from one another. They cannot be distinct. Very much God, very tangible. His disciples see him. They touch him. They're around him. They see him heal lame bodies. They see him go and give sight to the blind. They see him feed thousands of people with just a couple fish and a few loaves of bread. They see miracle after miracle hanging out with Jesus. They see him even raise the dead. In the midst of their time with him, though, they also hear him say that he's going to go and he's going to lay down his life. But don't be worried because just as he has the authority to lay down his life, he has the same authority to take his life up again. This is the kind of authority and a power that Jesus has. But I don't think they understood fully what he was talking about because as he makes his way to Jerusalem, they eventually go there and die. They see him go to a garden. And as he goes to that garden, they see him pray this deeply intense prayer with the Father through sleepy eyes, of course, because they continue to fall asleep on him. They see him go to this garden and pray, and then they watch him betrayed in that same garden. They watch him get taken out of that garden and beaten, and ultimately, they watch him go to the cross, bloody, bruised, betrayed, and every single one of them throughout that night at some point had betrayed and scattered away from Jesus. And this is the one that they said that they came to follow. This is the one that they'd been following for so long. This is the one that they believed that they had was the hope of the Savior, that was the, the hope of the world. This is the one that they chose to follow. At what point do you think any one of these men began to think, guys, what's going on? They began to look around at the scenario. They began to look around at the situation and just think, you know, we had a great run at it while we were going. You know, we had a, a great three years, almost like uh, high school buddies who are getting ready to, to graduate and the, and the gang's about to be broken up. Like he's going off to, to college and she's going off to another college and, and he's going off to work and she's going off to work over here. We had some great memories together, but now the gang's being broken up. And so now it's time for us to get back to the real, the real world. It's time for us to get back to reality. I wonder if at any point these guys are like, well, it's been fun, but now it's back to reality for us. As they watch Jesus He's hanging there on the cross, that barrier, the curtain. The thing that had been separating man from God for so long, it was, it was still there. It hadn't been removed yet. 
It, it was still blinding their eyes. They couldn't fully see Jesus for who he was. They couldn't fully access the presence of God. It was impossible for, for them. Look at Matthew 27 with me, starting in verse 45. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's noon to about three o'clock in the afternoon. That's when the sun is supposed to be the hottest. That's when the sun is at its peak and, and, the, and the sky is to be its brightest. But in this moment, the sky goes dark. Why? We'll see in just a minute. Look at verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, 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 lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is the sky dark at noon? And why on earth would Jesus feel that he's been abandoned by the Father? Guys, this is so crucial for our understanding of how Jesus stepped in to take away the sin of the world, how he stepped in to remove the barrier. This is so important why we're even celebrating Easter today, why we're able to celebrate the resurrection today. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him who knew no sin, the perfect spotless lamb, right? He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's that mean? It means that Jesus became sin. It means that Jesus took on everything that was due us. It means that he swapped places with us. That means that everything that happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, all the sacrifices that happened after what happened in the garden, all the wrath of God for sin, it's all being poured out on Jesus. So that those who would come and trust in Jesus later would never have to experience this cup of wrath that Jesus is about to experience. It's about to be poured out on him. It's somewhere in these moments that Jesus begins to experience the full wrath of God. It's when the, the perfect, beautiful Savior is becoming sin. The perfect Lamb of God led to the slaughter, not even opening up his mouth. That's why when Jesus goes to the garden to pray, he's so intensely praying that the Father would take this cup away from him. He says in Luke chapter 22, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's in that prayer in the garden where Jesus, he has sweat dripping from his brow, where his body, where capillaries are busting and, 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 and blood is, is beginning to push through his pores, that he is so intensely praying about what's to come, that he is just crying out to the Father. In other words, saying, I don't want to experience what's getting ready to come, but I will willingly I will willingly continue forward with the plan that you and I have put together since the beginning of time. The plan that we've established. I'll go through with it. And I'll do it willingly. The cup that he's referring to is the cup of God's wrath. It's what's getting ready to be poured out on him. This is all of the sin of the world. This is Jesus becoming sin. It's Adam's sin. It's your sin. It's my sin. And we're not talking just little white lies here. Okay, because we're, we're really good at cleaning up our own sin, really good at cleaning up the sin and to pretend like, you know, it's really not that bad. When Jesus becomes the sin of the world, it's the putrid hate of others. It's those defiling sexual sins. It's the hurting of the innocent. It's the rapes, it's the murder, it's the pedophilia, it's the hate, it's the lies. It's the things that make us cringe when we think about it. It's the things that when we begin to say, we're just like, man, I, I don't feel like I could even say that. But when Jesus becomes sin, 
to take on the wrath of God, he becomes all of the sin of the world, of the past, of the present, of the future. Every single bit of it. The cup of wrath that God is getting ready to pour out on him. It's going to be unleashed on him so that those who would come later would never have to experience that cup of wrath. So those who were coming and would trust in him wouldn't experience wrath, but would actually experience grace. But listen, it's not the cross that Jesus is afraid of. Others had gone to a cross. Others had laid down their life. Others had been brutally and horrifically died bad deaths on a cross. That's not why Jesus is so stressed out and torn up in the garden, right? I mean, I don't think he's looking forward to going to a cross. Don't get me wrong. I don't think he's looking for like, hey, today's a great day to just go lay down my life. I don't think that, that he's looking forward to that, but I don't think that's what he's torn up about either. It's all centered on what happens somewhere in these moments of darkness. He's never experienced break in the impenetrable connection that he and the Father had. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's for the very first time allowing himself to experience the other side of the curtain. He's allowing himself to experience what we experience. He's the sacrifice that's being made for sin. And I want you to listen to this because this is very theologically important. It's extremely important to understand that Jesus never, ever, ever stops being God. He never, ever, ever, there's never a break within the Trinity, okay? There's never a break. He never stops being God. And Scripture doesn't try to explain this away. Scripture doesn't try to explain the tension between how he became sin for us. He just says he became sin. He doesn't explain how it's possible. But somehow, not only does he feel the separation, but he experiences the separation. He feels the barrier so much so that he can cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he momentarily denies himself access so that he might forever give us access to the Father. Watch what happens in verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Look at verse 50 there. Jesus here, he's experiencing the wrath of God. All of it being poured out on him. And he's completely God. He never stops being God. He never stops being in control. He chooses to give up his spirit here. He gives up his spirit and then he dies. Remember, he says, I have the authority to lay down my life, but I also have the authority to, lay, to raise my life up again. He is in complete control of his surroundings in this moment. And he gives up his spirit. And when he died, he didn't just die. He triggered a whole chain of events signaling that something had changed. And what had changed? Jesus' death right there, it's the hinge from the old covenant to the new covenant. The old covenant completely filled in the blood of Jesus, completely satisfying the wrath of God. And we move from the old covenant of blood of lambs and bulls and goats and sheep, and we move from there and we move to the new covenant. There's a sacrifice of Jesus. We were covered now in his blood. One sacrifice made for all of humanity. He became sin so that he might instill and give us his righteousness. Look at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. There's so much happening here in these few short verses. When Jesus died, it's almost like the lights get turned on in in Jerusalem. Clearly something had changed. What had changed? Watch with me here. Like This backdrop of a veil is very thin. It's white. The temple, or the tabernacle veil and the temple veil, the temple veil was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, spun of scarlet and blue yarn. It was spun so significantly together, so thick together, that historians have said that it would have taken two bulls pulling in the opposite direction to actually be able to split the veil. And what happens here is the death of Jesus, at his death, the veil is ripped from top to bottom. I'm going to try something here. We didn't actually try this anytime this week, but we're going to give this a shot here. What happens is this veil is torn, right? Now, I have to rip this from the bottom. Scripture tells us that he ripped it from the top to the bottom. I don't even know if I can get up that high. But that's just showing my human weakness here, right? But when Jesus dies on the cross and he experiences the other side of the curtain, he forever destroys the curtain. Not only does he rip the curtain, but he renders it unmendable. It's no longer able to be used. And that's the point. God the Father, he rips this curtain. This is the last sacrifice for sin. It's the last sacrifice for sin, and it's the one that's been accepted. And you know what that means? That means that when he ripped the curtain, that we are able to see Jesus fully, unhindered. We are able to see him for who he fully is. And now, no longer do we have access denied signs, but we have full access granted signs in Jesus. We have full access to God. That means when Jesus experienced the other side of the curtain, he tore it down. There's no more barrier. There's no more access denied signs that are posted. We've been given access. The access that was lost in the garden between the sin of Adam and Eve, that access that was denied where a wall was put in between, that's been undone when Jesus gave his life up on the cross. That means no more wrangling up bulls and sheep. It means no more taking things to the temple. That means that there's no more fear in approaching God. It means that you no longer have to go through a priest in order to have somebody to make intercession for you. It meant that you can approach God with boldness and confidence that Jesus had paid your debt and that debt has been paid so significantly that Jesus, his offer of sacrifice, it was accepted by the Father. So now we can be in his presence. That means that when you can't see past hurt, means that when you can't see past the pain, when you can't see past doubt, and you can't see past unbelief, you have the ability to say, I can't see. There's something in front of me, and I can't see. Can you get it out of my way? I need help. And in those moments, because he's torn the veil, because there's nothing standing between you and God any longer, Right? that he's able to remove the veil from your eyes and able to allow you to see and access God. And I know some of us don't believe that in a room this size with many people in here. I know there are people who don't believe that. I know people who struggle with doubt to believe this. 
I know that there are folks who still live like the veil is still between them and God, that they still need intercession, that, they, that they, they still can't see past doubt, they still can't see past, they, that, that Jesus can't really love them like that. I know there are folks that are still struggling with that. But I think that's why the writer of Hebrews says this in, in chapter 10. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is Jesus standing there as the curtain right next to the Father saying, come, come, draw near to me. He's beckoning us to come and sit with him a while, to come and draw near to him, and we can have that confidence and have no fear, nothing standing in the way. The veil was torn. We have access to God, and we know that Jesus, he'd be taken off of the cross, and after he was taken off the cross, we know that he would go to a tomb, he'd be laid there for a few days, and shortly after that, the power of the resurrection would come. He'd be raised from the dead. And as he's raised from the dead, he goes and he makes himself known to people all around him. He shows himself. And there's, uh, there were some who doubted. Maybe, maybe you fall into the category of Thomas. You guys remember the, the story of Thomas? Thomas gets a bad rap. Thomas gets labeled as Thomas the doubter, right? But I think Thomas was a, pra- was, was a realist that he was very pragmatic, that he was very tangible, that he wanted to see, wanted to hear, wanted to touch, wanted to be around. And so Jesus, he shows up one time uh, with the disciples in this locked room, and Thomas isn't there. And, and so the disciples are all uh, like just incredibly excited to see Jesus, and they run and they tell Thomas, Thomas, you're never going to believe what just happened. I, we saw Jesus. We saw the real Jesus. We saw the resurrected Jesus. You're never going to believe it. He's like, you're right. I'm not going to believe it until I can put my finger and the nails of prints of his hands. Until I can put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe it. Now, this is, the same, this is the same guy. Like I don't know if you know much about Thomas. Um, Jesus was getting ready to go, and he was getting ready to lay, lay, raise Lazarus from the dead, the moment where he said, I'm the resurrection and life, right? He's getting ready to go, and he's going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. And um, Jesus like, this is what I'm going to do. Our friend Lazarus is sick. I'm going to go wake him up. And uh, and. Everybody's like, hey, you can't go. You can't go because if you go back there, they're going to kill you. And Thomas stands up and he says, well, if Jesus is going to go there and die, I guess I'm going to go there and die with him, right? This is Thomas. This is not Thomas the doubter. This is Thomas, I'm in this to the end. And then when things begin to go south for Jesus, um, the pragmatism begins to kick in for Thomas. And so he stands there and he says, unless I see it, I'm not going to believe it. And I love, I love the personal nature of Jesus for those who doubt and for those who struggle and for those who have a blinder in front of them. Thomas is standing there in a room and this time Jesus shows up to the disciples again and he goes straight to Thomas. He says, Thomas, I want you to put your hand right here. Do you see this? Do you see this nail print? Put your finger right there. Do you see it? That's grace. Thomas, take your hand and I want you to put it in my side. You feel that? That's my grace. And he looks at Thomas and he says, don't doubt, but believe. And then Thomas looks at him and says, my Lord and my God. 
Jesus takes the veil off of his eyes. He'd already turned, torn the curtain. Now he lifted the veil from Thomas's eyes. It's almost like he took his MVGs off, the old busted ones, and put on the new MVGs so that he could see again. I know that in our space right now, there's probably some that are struggling to see. Is there anybody who's struggling to see, who's been driving around just hitting everything in the path, and you don't know what's going on, you're just willing to raise up your hand and say, I can't see. I just can't see. I, I'm hurting, and I can't see. I want you to know that the veil was torn. I want you to know not only do you have access to God, but you can approach him with boldness. You don't have to stand in a gap between you and him. You can approach him with boldness. You have access to his presence. You have access to his forgiveness. You have access to the Holy Spirit. You have access to a heavenly place that he's prepared for you. He tore down the veil so that you can see. Can you see him? Don't live like there's still a veil. He's removed it. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for time with my brothers and sisters. Thank you for those who are in the room who are on their journey to you. This is a time where we celebrate. This is a time of Easter. This is a, a fantastic time for those who have trusted a life in Jesus and we get to celebrate the fact that he rose from the dead and the curtain was torn, the, the sacrifice was accepted and, and we celebrate that. But this is also a time, Lord, where there are some who haven't yet seen the resurrected Savior. They're still waiting for that tangible. I want to see him. I want to touch him. I want to see him. And you said even to Thomas in this moment, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And I want to pray, Father, for those who don't yet know Jesus in the room, that today, this Easter, 2021, 2021 Easter's since Jesus was resurrected, I pray that this might be a day where somebody's eyes are open and they say, I can't see, I need Jesus. I need the impact of the veil torn in my life. I'm tired of driving around and hitting things. I just want to see. And so I pray you might remove the veil from somebody's eyes this morning. They might see you for the first time and they might be able to celebrate in the resurrection of a, of a good, good Savior. Thanks for the cross. Thanks for the resurrection. And thanks that we can draw near to you and you beckon us to draw near, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.